Hello everybody and welcome to the festive palace of glittering delight. We've decked the halls, the tinsel hangs from the ramparts, all of the moat bridges have been drawn up because we don't want any pesky carol singers interrupting our night of Christmas festivities. Now, I was toying with what to do for the Christmas episode of Palace this year. Largely because I don't think I've done a Christmas one before. We always do a Christmas Hey Kids comics. Uh, but now that Michael is flee, flee, free to do what he wants any old time, um, we, we don't know if that's going to happen this year. So I thought, well, I've got to do something festive because Christmas is cool. Uh, or Yule, as the case may be. Uh, and I was toying around the idea of a Christmas this or a Christmas that. And I thought, you know... You know what says Christmas more than anything? It's a Star Trek commentary. And that just made me think, of course, Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek only has Christmas in one episode, and that was a movie. Not an episode, it was Star Trek Generations. But when I did, recently did the, the Mirror Mirror commentary, Mirror Mirror was but one of three potential choices. That's the cat knocking at the door. Uh, three potential choices for me to yak over. Uh, Mirror Mirror was obviously one of them, and the other two were the Doomsday Machine and the episode I am going to cover tonight, my all-time favourite episode of Star Trek, A Mock Time. Now, the reason I went with Mirror Mirror for the commentary a couple of months ago was that I just happened upon, scrolling through something one day, I just happened upon the, the revelation, the news, the anniversary, the whatever you want to call it, that Mirror Mirror was that very weekend celebrating the 50th birthday of its first Uri. Now, obviously, it took me a week or so to get it out to you guys, but I did record that on the weekend of, of Mirror Mirror's 50th. So it made sense to dust the idea off to do a Christmas commentary for you all, but not on something Christmassy, because that would be too obvious. We don't do obvious stuff here at the palace. We do stuff a little bit left of centre. So, we are going to watch a mock time. I have two, count them, calorie counters, two chocolate biscuits. Let's just, here you go, just proof. Mmm, oh, mmm, chocolate digestive. Mmm, McVitie's chocolate digestive. Can't go wrong. I suppose I should say cookies for any of our American friends that may be listening. I have in my hand a nice warm cup of tea. Here we go. Ah, because it is very, very cold today. I think it's minus one today. Which isn't cold if you're one of our Canadian friends, but it's cold here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the the lovely the theme tune. Da, 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 all of that. Uh, and when we come back, we will be going straight into a mock time. I am watching this on Netflix. So if you wish to join in with me, feel free. Uh, and I'll give you the the opening title music thing. There are no titles on a podcast, but you know what I mean. I will give you that time to queue up the episode, a mock time. Is anybody out there? Roll up, roll up. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all. Books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film live from the Palace of Glittering Delights. And here, your host, Dantry Leyland. And we're back talking about a mock time. Uh, this episode was first aired as the first episode of the second season of the original Star Trek. 
Uh, it won an award, I think, a Hugo Award. It was also shown first at a, a science fiction convention over the summer before the episode actually aired. It must have been fresh off the printer, or fresh off the film, when Roddenberry screened it at that convention in, in 19, the summer of 1968. As although this was the first episode to err of the second season, it was not the first episode filmed. Uh, that was, I think it was Cat's Paw. I could be wrong on that. Um, this is my all-time favourite episode of not only the original Star Trek, but Star Trek generally. I've, I've mentioned before that the second season is quintessential Star Trek, as far as I'm concerned. All of the characters look exactly as you expect them to look. Um, you know, Bones McCoy looks... The, the hairstyles are all right, the costumes are all right, the, the actors are the right wage or whatever aren't, aren't starting to thicken or what else. Um, but what I particularly like about this episode is that the themes that run throughout the show are very interesting themes. Star Trek tackling the idea of family loyalty, loyalty to your friends, this whole idea that has only become something in the, the 90s and the 2000s, that your friends are your family. You know, you choose your family just as much as you choose your friends and good friends become part of the family. All of those are themes to this episode. Um, but also it's uh, a magnificent romp. As I mentioned when I did the Mirror Mirror commentary, this episode does things that I don't think modern television does. Modern television's great. It's probably the best it's ever been in terms of being able to extrapolate character and story across a, a long-form kind of entertainment, like 15 episodes, 13 episodes, whatever, uh, to tell its story. But... I think what's remarkable about these early Star Treks is that in 50 minutes they manage to tell a story that is is replete with, with action, drama, comedy, uh, a resolution after a good setup. All of that is is handled brilliant and nowhere is it, it better really in these second season episodes of the original show. I put that down to the fact that for me, the reason that the Star Trek experience has never really been replicated, DeForest Kelly gets his first opening title credit, though, um, is that, oops, just quickly, Theodore Sturgeon wrote this episode, Joe Pevney directed it, all the effects have been newly enhanced for these HD versions, is that this creative team that were the main core writing staff at this point in the show's history were Gene Roddenberry, who was still actively involved with the show at this point, Gene Kuhn, and Dorothy Fontana. And it hit the ground at the point that those three started working together on the show. And you could never replicate that. You could bring Dorothy Fontana back for the animated series and Roddenberry, and back for Star Trek The Next Generation... But Kuhn sadly passed away in, I think it was 75 or 76. So he never even lived long enough to see that the, the work that he'd done had become so beloved. Um, this episode is interesting as well because it, it has themes 
that would carry on throughout Star Trek, particularly into Star Trek 3. One of the things that's mentioned a lot about Captain Kirk is that he was, I mean, even Janeway says this in an episode of Voyager, is that he was a maverick, he was a rule breaker. And I, I was thinking about that recently. I can only really think of two times he broke the rules. And this is one of those episodes. Spock is having some kind of emotional breakdown. Largely because, you know, his balls are backed up because of the pond fur. One of the misconceptions about this, to me, is that this idea that Vulcans can only have sex every seven years. I don't think that's true. I think Vulcans can have sex whenever the hell they like. But they have to have it at this point. This is their, their, their imperative to have it at this point. One of the things I like about this script is the way it doesn't tell the story within the first five minutes. It's doling out information slowly. Spock isn't letting you know here exactly what's wrong with him. We've been told he's got a problem. He's having some kind of emotional breakdown. He's requested leave and Kirk has, has granted him that leave. But they've not hung a lantern on exactly what is wrong with him. This is another way that I think that the original track was exceptionally well written. This idea that they they tell their stories not slowly, but they tell their story deliberately over the course of the, the 50 minutes that the, the episode takes place. Again, the pacing on a lot of these shows is absolutely perfect. And this this is a fine example of that. And the, the thing with this, I don't understand why they can't just put Spock in a shuttle and send him off to Vulcan. I mean, you know, would, would is a shuttle not fast enough? Would a shuttle not get there in time? I don't know. Because Spock has... Oh, the very first appearance of, of Pavel Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig in a <laughs> quite terrible wig because he had to let his hair grow out because they, they employed Chekhov to appeal to the Davy Jones market, the monkeys been very popular at this point. I love that line. Any port this ship makes will be somebody else's, not mine. Performances in this one are uniformly great. Shatner, very laid back in this one, rather than bombastic. He's fully in the moment. He's watching Spock's reaction to what they're talking about, to see what it does. It's... um quite telling that he's keeping his eye on his officer to see what it is. That shot's a bit blurry, the shot of Kirk on his uh, on his bed as they zoom in. Navigation. Navigation. Dick off here. I'm not entirely convinced by Walter Koenig's uh, Russian accent, but, you know, I suppose it was nice to have a Russian on at this time, a Russian helping us and working with us. Uh-huh. Um, oh. And then, you know, Spock has disobeyed orders and reordered the Enterprise to Vulcan, which does not sit well with Captain Kirk. Lovely hero shot of Shatner, though, stood at the turbo left. Doesn't ball his officer out in front of the rest of the crew. Just asks to have a quiet word with him. Only really Uhura seems to note that there was some tension there, perhaps... Chekhov hasn't been on the ship long enough to, to notice when stuff like that happens. One of the, the other things about this episode that is utterly fantastic 
is the score. The score in this episode is one of the finest of the series run. The Vulcan music, Spock's theme, as it would be recycled through other episodes as we go through this. Is um, wonderfully, wonderfully evocative. Excellent restrained performance from Leonard Nimoy as he tries to explain what's going on. It's interesting that we've been friends, or at the very least on friendly terms, with the Vulcans for some considerable time if we factor in other Star Trek media since the first contact, the movie and the event was Ephraim Cochran made first contact with the Vulcans. But we don't know anything about Ponfar. There's still a lot about them that we don't know, that they keep to themselves. It's what makes prequels and other such things slightly hard to follow, um, or to allow, really. I'm pretty sure there is an Enterprise episode with T'Pol going through the Ponfar, and Trip has to help her through it, so Trip never mentioned that. I mean, it's entirely possible that he never mentioned it, if uh, she swore him to secrecy. Ah, clever. Letter of the off order, though, Spock. I've been ordered to report to sick bear, but not actually do anything once I get here. DeForest Kelly are giving uh, as good as he gets, chewing, um, chewing Spock's balls out. Sorry, I'm just having a bite of my chocolate cookie. Biscuit. Whatever. Um, watching this on Netflix, this one's very grainy, which I personally don't mind because I like a bit of grain, especially on stuff that is filmed. But I thought they cleaned a lot of this up. Ah, comedy moment. Not underscored by a ridiculous comedy tune. He'll die, Jim. One of the things I do remember, I have this one on videotape from the BBC. Again, like Mirror Mirror, they cut the from He'll Die, Jim. Cut straight back on here. Why? Cutting the fade to black out. Again, an edit that makes perfect sense on a show that doesn't have a commercial break. One of the more unusual edits that the BBC made to the show was they re-edited the opening so that the pre-credit sequence wasn't pre-credits. They would put, they moved the credits to the beginning of the episode and then showed the teaser and then went into the episode again because on the BBC there was no need to have that pre-credit sequence because you weren't keeping around after the advert breaks. So they moved it around. McCoy realises here that Spock will die if they don't get him to Vulcan to do whatever the hell it is he needs to do, which in this case is, you know, get his end away. Or oh, we'll talk to Captain Kirk. Another great thing about this episode, you know, ooh, Spock's looking at child porn. I'd see the thing with that, um, he's not looking at child porn really, but he's looking at a picture of a, a young lady 
I refuse to believe that Tipring, who that obviously that will be, has not sent him pictures over the years of her as a full-grown adult. Has he had no communication with Tipring in all this time? Has he not got an up-to-date picture of him? Because to modernise, Spot looking at a picture of a 14-year-old girl is now perhaps a little dubious, in a way that it probably wasn't in 1967 or 68 or whatever this was. Um, but I'm sure it's easily fixed because they've tampered with that, excuse me, with that picture in the HD remaster. In the original episode, it was a picture of the young girl with the Vulcan ears against a plain background and they've put Vulcan in the back. So surely it would have made sense to update it. Although if they do that, it takes away from the reveal of Tipring later on. Although it doesn't tell us who she is, which is part of the reveal. So I'm 50-50 on that. I don't know. I don't, I'm, on the one hand, I can understand them not wanting to change something. But on the other, from our point of view, having him look at pictures of 14-year-old girls seemed a little bit strange. Spock must now tell Kirk what it is that's wrong with him. Um... Beaut again, a beautifully acted scene. Shatner is very subdued, very low-key, as is, obviously, Nimoy. And it's just well, it's just well-written dialogue. And Star Trek gets a lot of the piss taken out of it by people who, I'm convinced, never actually watched the show. But scenes like this, they're nothing to do with special effects or makeup or anything like that. They are to do with character. And the dialogue is written fully in character. I mean, Spock now is trying to explain to Kirk the birds and the bees on primetime television in 1968. Shatner is playing it magnificently. He can't believe that he's having this conversation with his first officer. Nimoy is likewise magnificent, squirming with embarrassment as they... Uh, as they discuss the nature of Vulcan reproduction. Fair enough. Apparently the writer Theodore Sturgeon worked very closely with um, Gene Kuhn uh, in the creation of this script. He did a lot of research into Vulcan lore with the help of Dory Fontana, but was also inventing a lot of Vulcan lore for this episode. It's really the first episode that delves into Spock's background and his home planet, and we see lots of other Vulcans. This this episode has given us an awful lot for the the rest of the writing staff on subsequent series to mine, and it all stems from this one. The the, the ceremonies, the rituals that the Vulcans undergo, all of this plays into numerous episodes hereafter. Um, a lot of it will come from Journey to Babel as well, which is the other main Vulcan episode of the original show. And an awful lot from this. So Star Trek Three, the idea of rituals and ceremonies and all that plays into the search for Spark and, and they've carried it on. So I think not only Ted Sturgeon, who came up with this script, but also Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana helped flesh it out deserve a lot of credit for making Spock a livable, livable, a believable character. 
that's a very Star Trek thing that they talk about the salmon who swim upstream to to shag, and all they always make something up. And on Regulation Seven Fourteen, the Cray eels must return to the place that they were hatched. That kind of thing. Again, the score in the background is precursor to the music that they'll play later on. You've in the background here. You've got the 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 battle theme, the fight theme. Da, 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 much slower version of the fight theme that we will get later on and will be regurgitated in other episodes interestingly or perhaps not interestingly but interestingly to me when I do watch Star Trek which is quite a lot I've I've said many times this is my desert island TV show you know if you're stuck on a desert island you're only given one box set that box set would be the, the original Star Trek Unless it was a box set of a TV show I've never watched. That, that may be possible. Anyway, um, my box set would be the original Star Trek. And I was watching an episode the other day. I think it was the Gamesters of Triskelion was getting repeated late at night. So I left it on while we were dozing off. And in that episode, they played the, the fight theme. And my wife just looked at me and looked at the TV and then looked back at me and said, it's wrong using it here. So, you know, that's how, not important, but that's how much of a, an imprimatur on uh, on pop culture. That theme is made here. Spock playing his Vulcan Lyra again, which is um, a call back to the first season where he would sit in the... Um, oh, smash his... Now, that's a really nice effect. It doesn't look like cardboard. They did a really good job of painting that TV screen to look like metal. Admiral Comac, who will be mentioned, actually, in the later... J.J. Abrams movies so it's nice to see that the Abrams movies at least understand the the outward appearance of Star Trek even if they don't get the, the soul of it Kirk being given a dressing down by a commanding officer here again playing into this misconception of Kirk as a rule breaker no he goes to his commanding officer he, dim, he tries to reason with him to bargain with him Everything to get him to give permission to go to Vulcan. And Kirk makes the decision here to disobey orders. It's not a decision that comes lightly to him. It's not a decision that he does every day. He's prepared here to throw away his career to save his friend. Or to save anybody, really, which he'd probably do. And he actually says, isn't that worth a career? Bones, they'll bust you out of Starfleet. Um, All powerful, powerful stuff. And if Kurt was the rule breaker that he was generally considered to be, this wouldn't be a decision for him. He would have just gone. Um, Like I said, if you can, lovely listener, remember another episode where he flagrantly breaks the rules to, to get what he wants, point it out to me. But I can only think of this and the search for Spark. I can't think of any other episode where he blatantly disobeys orders. I can think of a number of episodes where he's told to use his best discretion because he's literally out where none have gone before and, you know, nobody else has done this before. So the decisions that Kirk makes will, of course, provide data back to Starfleet on 
on how to approach similar situations should other starships come across it. Um, there are episodes where he can't get in touch with Starfleet, so again, he has to make his own decision. But in those instances, he's been given a wide latitude as per his job description. This, this version of Star Trek, they couldn't just get in touch with Starfleet Command every time they had a problem. Kirk was out beyond the final frontier. He was out where, where we'd never explored before, where we'd never been before. And a lot of this stuff that retcons and prequel series be damned, a lot of this stuff Kirk was doing for the first time. And therefore Starfleet were willing to give him the latitude that he needed to get the job done. But when he had to follow up, he followed orders. Private Little War is a, an example of that. That episode where they have to maintain the balance of power, the Klingons are arming one side of a conflict, the Federation armed the other side to, to maintain that balance because it's in their better interests to, to not have one side destabilise the region. And throughout the show, McCoy's in his ear all the time. Are you sure this is the right thing to do? And Kirk's very, no, it's not the right thing to do, but these are my orders. Um, Christine Chappell, her unrequited love for Mr. Spark, something that carried on through the show. And uh, our first glimpse of Vulcan. So you're watching this episode thinking you're getting a ship show, and then halfway, not a ship show, a ship show, and halfway through, it becomes a planet show. Oh, that was nice. This is a lovely moment, Kirk, Spock and McCoy in the turbo lift alone. Most patient with my kinds of madness. And not only does he ask Kirk to go with him. Lovely pause though, while Kurt realises exactly what it is that Spock's asking of him. That's a great moment where he asks McCoy to go with them. Solidifying the, the triumvirate that, that generated organically. You know, Dr. McCoy isn't in every episode of the, the first season. There's a number of episodes early days that McCoy's not even in. And he's not in either one of the pilot episodes. This is something that just happened when these three actors got together and the writers started responding to it. This is our first time that we'll go, of course, Nurse Chapel comes on. So he was in sick bay. If Dr. McCoy's here and Nurse Chapel's here, it's Dr. Mabenga running sick bay. And here we have the mighty Tipring. I would just take a minute though to bask in the loveliness that is Tipring. My second favourite Star Trek girl of all time. I think I like Tipring because she's, she's just a. She turns out to be incredibly crafty. And not somebody to be trifled with. And uh, excellently cast with uh, Arlene Martel, I believe her name is. She has an otherworldly look to her. Especially wearing the ears. So she's exceptionally well cast. If they bring Tipring back in uh, one of the future Abrams, New Kelvinverse movies or, or whatever... Uh, they really need to cast Mila Kunis as Tipring, because not only is she a massive Star Trek fan, but um, she actually has a look of, of Arlene Martel. 
Kirk, Spock and McCoy beam him to Vulcan, our first appearance of Vulcan. Again, a lot of people like to take the piss out of the Pepe Mache rocks. Uh, the CG here, they've changed this entire scene. Kirk and Spock and McCoy can now be seen walking across a large stone bridge to the ceremony that is located atop what looks like a, a mountain connected by two bridges. Uh, obviously, that didn't exist in the original show. Just gives it a little bit of... A little bit of heft, a little bit of weight. It doesn't necessarily look like a, a set. But again, on a, on a television budget in 1968, they made another planet. You know, and it's not something that gets a lot of credit for. I've said before, you know, Bonanza couldn't make the Ponderosa not look like a set. So, the fact that Star Trek was able to pull this off on a, a weekly basis. All of this stuff is brilliant. Marriage or challenge, the Kunut Caliphate. Kill to win their mate. See, the problem with, with adding that establishing shot of the central dais being atop a rock connected by two bridges, you do wonder were Tipring and her entourage were waiting, because it doesn't seem like there was anywhere that they could hide. And we're, you know, we're nearly half an hour into the episode without commercials before anything action-wise has happened. Star Trek was, was a, a talky show, but in a good way. So the Vulcans going for arranged marriages. So again, that's you can read into this episode if you choose to. That they're talking about arranged marriages and the problems that face people who are in arranged marriages. I mean, that's probably looking into it a bit more deeply than the writers ever intended. But uh, it's certainly a show about friendship and loyalty. I think that that's undeniable and the bond between these three people. So the question becomes, has Tipring been going through Ponfar? Because she seems very composed throughout this entire thing. Because that was a debate for many years amongst Trek fans. Is, do the women go through Ponfar? Or is it only the men? And again, in Star Trek Three, when Spock is reborn on Genesis, we only see him go through the Ponfar. We don't see Savick go through Ponfar. Uh, the DC comics of that time period did have Savick go through Ponfer, and later on, Paul did go through Ponfer on Enterprise, so it was later established that the women went through it. But Tupring certainly doesn't seem to be suffering any side effects. Kirk instantly recognises Tupal. Um, a question could be asked why Spock's parents aren't at this this ceremony. Um, the, I mean, the obvious reason is they haven't cast them yet, because Journey to Babel hasn't happened yet. But um, it's an established... It's established here that Spock is from an important family, which leads into Journey to Babel. Um, I do like... All the other Vulcans are built like Conan. <laughs> Which I always thought was amusing. This idea that, that Spock's the only tall, lanky Vulcan. All the other Vulcans are muscular hulks of men. But are also very smart and worldly and logical. You can imagine that would be uh, some woman's dream. I love Celia Lofke's performance as T'Pau. I think she's absolutely fantastic. And it's the way 
that she, the accent that she's got is perfect for the part because, you know, why wouldn't a Vulcan have an accent when speaking English? For Outworlders? She says Outworlders as if it's a, a, a swear word, which uh, I think is quite impressive. Nice touch as well from the makeup department. Um, McCoy's already said hot as Vulcan. Now I understand what that means. None of the Vulcans are sweating, but Kirk and McCoy are now coated with a, a fine sweat. Uh, a very subtle touch. Leonard McCoy. Dr. McCoy, they've been all charming to Celia Lofsky. To Pow would not only inspire the name of an 80s pop band, who uh, constantly, when asked about it, would constantly say Mr. Spock's grandmother. Nowhere in this episode does T'Pau say she's Spock's grandmother, just that she's a very high muckety-muck on the Vulcan Council, and um, her, it's Spock's family must be very connected to be friends with her. I mean, uh, to go back to what I was saying, I suppose it makes sense that the parents aren't there for this, because it doesn't look like T'Pring's parents are there for this. Muscular Vulcans that are playing the harp, not the harp, the cymbals. The tambourine, rather than the cymbals. And Spock must walk away. Now, T'Pring's entire plot unravels here, if you actually think about it. How did she know he was going to bring Kirk down with him? For her to be able to issue the challenge. And now the music kicks in. The music's absolutely brilliant. Love the, the, the underscore in this one. The score in this episode. Da -da, da -da. Dum dum. Dum dum. Dum 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 dum. You're like, Sorry, you've not paid to listen to me sing. Well, you've not paid. So if I want to sing for an entire episode, I shall. It's Christmas. At least I'm not singing Christmas carols to you. Only if cowardice is seen. Uh, this, apparently this was quite an expensive episode. Not only did they have to build a new planet set, but all these ears and eyebrows cost a lot of money. So speak to Kirk. Speak at him. Deep in the plaque tau. All these wonderful new phrases and, and stuff. Kunut Califi, plaque tau, pomfar. Oh, brilliant stuff. Star Trek adding to its own mythology in a very convincing, realistic and believable way. Spock chose his friends with It's a real shame we never saw to power again um, as Celia Lofsky. I mean, I understand the idea was to bring her back for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spark, when they have to reunion, reunion, rejoin, whatever you want to call it, um, Spock's Catra into in at the end of that film, but Silovsky wasn't well. Uh, just take a look at, at the other Vulcans here. None of the women have the bowl cut. Um, I maintain most of the other Star Trek shows subsequent to this never got Vulcans right. Never. Um, you could argue a case to Paul was okay in Enterprise and some of the other guest characters in Enterprise were okay. But Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager never managed to nail Vulcans properly, even with one of the regular cast. 
Um, as good a job as he did, he, he certainly wasn't one of the problems I had with Voyager. But none of the women have the bowl cuts. The women have luxurious hair. Uh, so I don't know why the sequel series insisted on that. Um, Tipringi is even wearing a very nice um, skirt that cuts very high up the top, showing off her thighs. Now, it's possible to assume that Tipring didn't plan on Kirk being here and changed her mind at the last minute, because certainly Ston, Ston's reaction to being chosen is, is one of surprise. So, is Tipring going through the pond for her and Ston has been um, helping her through this and that's why she's not as jittery as Spock is because I'm sure Christine Chapel would have helped him so another way that this episode is, is magnificently written is each moment is built on the last so you've had the reveal that Spock's married or about to be married then you've had the the coming down now the, the challenge so it isn't just going to be the marriage the idea that Kirk has been now picked as the champion. Wow. He speaks. See, so Spock's here saying he does not understand. And they're all like, oh, it's up to him. At this point, do you not think one of them would turn around and say, right, well, before you make a decision, Kirk... You may want to know that this is a fight to the death. But no, they don't do that. Does not burn. Well, does Ston's blood burn? Is Ston going through Ponfar? I don't see how that can be. Unless they're both exactly the same age. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But again, you're looking too deeply. You're looking, you're looking to find problems when you're asking that. For the most part, this is a very tight and exceptionally well-written episode. Um, probably another reason why it's one of my favourites, in addition to the expansion of the Spock character and the expansion of the Vulcan, the Vulcan mythology. The the story is scripted exceptionally well, very tight, each event building upon the last one to give us new reveals at the precise moment to, to make you go, oh, the acting in this one is all stellar. Absolutely brilliant acting by everyone, from guest stars to main cast. I think the only thing that hampers this from being perfect is that it doesn't feature all the core cast. Scotty is not in this episode at all. He's mentioned, he gets mentioned at the end, but he's not in it. But it's one of the rare episodes that has Sulu, Chekhov and Uhura in, because midway through season two, Sulu, George Takai, took off to, um, to film the Green Berets with John Wayne. So he wasn't available for a number of episodes in the mid middle of season two. Do-do-do-do. Are we ready? Are we ready for the big battle? There we go. Da -da, da -da. You tell him. Well, who would they, who would they select? If it ain't going to be Ston, it can't be the incredible Vulcan, though. Because, my God, he's a big bloke. Vulcan the Barbarian. Maybe that's a spin-off they should think of doing. God, I've been the voice of reason as usual. In this heat. 
also, you know, it's a little egocentric of Kirk to assume he can beat Spock anyway, because he can't really. There's no way really that Kirk would be able to take Spock in a fight. Vulcans have been established as much stronger than humans. There's a famous blooper here, isn't there? Is it here? Where we supposedly see Leonard Nimoy stood off to the side, not deep in the black tower. Yeah, it's going to be that easy, Jim. Brilliant camera angles as well. Brilliant directing by Joe Pevner. Giving us a lot of Dutch angles, though. Very similar to the 60s Batman show. But he's using them very effectively just in the scenes to show, not Spock's madness, but to show that he's undergoing, going through something. Decide. A lovely little smile from uh, to Pring though. Just, just very tiny little upturn of the mouth when he says, I accept, in the background. She lowers her eyes. So you can argue not an emotional outburst, but certainly some emotion. It was at the end. There were the lines, but whatever. The lurper which are the, the big sticks that they fight with, have a big weighted end for you to thump people with, and then the other end is a big circular half blade. Um, Spock now looking feral again. Nimoy turning in an excellent performance. <clears throat> Not to be outdone, Shatner turning in an excellent performance, largely of bemusement, because he has no idea what the hell's going on. With the Arn wound. I love this. What do you mean if they both survive? This is a fight to the death. And you'll know that, again, we're nearly, we're nearly 40 minutes into this episode, and the thing everyone remembers it for, the big Kirk-Spock battle scene, hasn't happened yet. They've not even started fighting yet. But so, it will become after that commercial break. Uh, Kirk's like, <laughs> hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. A fight to the death? Awesome. So again, the script throwing you another curveball. Um, I don't think Starfleet would take too kindly to, to Vulcan the Barbarian cutting Dr. McCoy's head off. I don't think that would have been appreciated. Oh, so like Kirk's up shit creek now, isn't he? He's got to fight his first officer to the death. Shirt rip. It's different to a, a Star Trek shirt rip. Um, in HD, we can quite clearly see that the stuntmen have, have taken over now. Which is a shame. It's it's not quite as bad as as Mirror Mirror, because uh, Spock's stuntman tends to keep his back to us, uh, and Shatner's double is much better than Nimoy's. It has to be said. Ah, that was the cover of the video box. Those two fighting there. We go to an overhead shot now to try and disguise the fact that these are the doubles. Again, although Shatner's double is better than Nimoy's. Shatner's stunt double has slightly darker hair 
than Shatner does. But, um, you know, the fight choreography is good. Ooh. Although Nimoy did that fall himself. See, why does she stop the battle, though? Why? Why? What is the reason for stopping the fight, though? And then, lovely bit, though. Again, something you only get when you've watched it a couple of times. Close-up of McCoy, though, where you can clearly see he's thinking something. He's thinking this through. So he's going to go into his bag of tricks. I mean, it's lucky that he had this with him. I mean, it's always possible that... Um, the uh, the hydro injector things that Dr. McCoy always injects people with. It's possible they're pre-programmed and connected to the tricorder. And maybe the tricorder can give it whatever it needs through, you know, Starfleet magic. Kill Spock? It's not what I came to Vulcan for, is it, Bones? I always love as well that they never have to roll the sleeves up in Star Trek. <laughs> and the uh, they never leave a mark. On the uniforms whenever he injects anybody in the arm. Although there is an early episode where he does a rip Kirk shirt open, isn't there? I think it's the naked tie to, to give him the injection, but that was, they were never consistent with that. This is another brilliant piece of acting from Shatner. He's given the next thing to fight with, and he's like, what the hell's this? Because it, 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 it is just a, a piece of rope with some wood on the end. Kirk doesn't really know what to make of it. So Spock has the upper hand, and we, we go into the fight music again. Shatner doing his own fight work there, although Leonard Nimoy was doubled. Oh, premature. It's a problem no man likes to have. Um... You've got to wonder, in a lot of cases, miracle Star Trek cures happen straight away. But this one is um, takes a certain amount of time to actually start to affect Dr. Dr. McCoy, Captain Kirk. Which is very fortunate. Although, you know, McCoy's a smart guy. He probably realised that it would take a certain amount of time. To sort this out. And he's just killed Captain Kirk. If I have a complaint about Ted Sturgeon's scripts for the original Star Trek, he wrote two. He wrote this one and he wrote Show Leaves. Both scripts were rewritten by the writing staff, but you know, the germs of the idea of the main script came from him. Both of his episodes end with the killing of a main character. You know, Shoreleave ended with the death of, of Dr. McCoy. And a mock time ends with the death of Captain Kirk. You know, as we go through the series, Scotty died as well, didn't he? But was resurrected? Was that the changeling that Scotty died? And Uhura had her brain wiped, but, you know, they retrained her in a way. So it's not just Spock who's died and come back. Um, at least... In both instances, you know, the deaths were explained as not really deaths. This was all part of McCoy's plan. I do wonder how long they kept this up. How long does T'Pring go and T'Pow, sorry, go 
thinking that Captain Kirk's dead. Or do they, when they get back to the ship, Spock gets in touch with them and says, oh, by the way, everything's fine. Do 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 Saving some money though by keeping the beam up off screen, which is a clever little trick. And now we get to Pring and her magnificent bosoms. I have been shagging Star for years. I don't know why. I love this bit. I think the logic improved Stod over me. After the brilliant bit where Leonard Nimmo just like checks him out, just looks at him and goes, Him? The complete opposite of, uh, of today's society, where women throw themselves at celebrities for their five minutes of fame. And men do it as well. Let's not be sexist about that. There are certain men who uh, go on these reality TV shows or try and hook up with a Cardassian so that they can be kept men. Name and your property. And Stan would still be here. <laughs> Flawlessly logical. I mean, it's not that. Um... You know, what if Spock had killed Ston? She didn't really, she didn't really have a plan for that outcome. <laughs> if I'd killed Ston. I love this phrase, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. It is not logical, but it is often true. Oh, life lessons from Star Trek. Isn't that what we want from the show? You're left with what you think is quite a melancholy ending. And to Pring's, Pring's now, wait a minute, did I do the right thing here? I I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's a novel somewhere. I'm pretty sure I've read a novel with to Pring. And I think it was Federation or something like that. I'm pretty sure. Um, but I'd like to know what happened with her and Stom. Did they, did they get married or whatever? Did they have the marriage? Did they live happily ever after? Pretty sure she's in Federation by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, but I don't really remember the details of it. I'm sure there's, there's another, if somebody knows there's a novel that follows or explains what happened to Depring and Stone, let me know. I'd like to, uh, another new shot though. That's, so there's some considerable distance away from what looks like the main Vulcan town. One of the things that they've added to these remastered editions is the dark side of the planet and the light side of the planet, which is a nice touch, obviously something they, they probably couldn't afford to do. In uh, with nineteen sixty special effects. And then we get the final big reveal as uh, Spock. So there you go, Scotty's mentioned, even though he's not in in the episode. That's a good line. I'll order Mr. Scott to, to take over. And then you get a glimpse there of early first season Spock who smiled and was nice and you know all that. Love a little shirt tuck. I am pleased. Underplaying it magnificently there, Leonard and my. His hair looks slightly shorter here, but you know, very silky. Simulated death. 
way Spock looks at McCoy. Indeed. And what he's not saying is, you bastard. So having thinking, having thought, sorry, that he's killed Captain Kirk, he's, uh, he suddenly has no desire to shag the rather luscious to bring, it has to be said. Maybe he will take Christy Chapel upon her offer later on. You know, he's still going to have to get rid of all that backlog. So, and there's a logical reason in this one for Kirk not getting a bollocking for disobeying orders to power his a high muckety-muck. Um, the only person to ever turn down a seat on the Federation Council. This is the only problem with this line, McCoy's here, right at the end, is a bit rushed. For some reason. It's, a, it's also unusual as well. It's got a nice little tag wrap-up scene here, but it's not on the bridge. Let's go mind the store. And the Enterprise warps off to another adventure. Um, and there you go. That was a mock time. My all-time favourite episode of the original show. I hope you enjoyed me waffling all over it. And ruining it. Ruining ruin it. I can't say ruined. Ruining it. Oh, yeah. um, uh, that's it thank you very much for another year of uh, listening to this twaddle I very much appreciate it I very much appreciate you joining me every week with whatever drivel I decide to, to go on about I hope you all have a very good Christmas uh, and a very good New Year and let's hope 2018 is a little bit better than 2017 I'll see you soon I'll just let the music play out for you and I'm not singing it this time which I'm sure some of you will be delighted about. Oh, this one closes with Balok, not the green woman. All right, have a good Christmas, everybody, and I'll see you real soon. <laughs>